would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Our passage this morning is one verse, verse 10. As I just said just a moment ago, last week we just started, we've started a four-week series through the portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that is known as the Lord's Prayer, right? So throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, there were many things that he never taught his followers to do. He never taught them to preach a sermon. He never taught them how to, how to write a worship song or to plant a church. But like we said last week, he did teach his followers, his disciples, how to pray. He taught them how to pray because God wants his people to talk to him. It's, it's really why God created us in the first place to have and be in relationship with him. And that's what we are doing when we pray. Prayer is the primary way that we are able to foster and enjoy and deepen our relationship with God. And what we know of God, of course, is revealed in Scripture, right? So last week, as we examined verses 5 through 9, if you recall with me, we, we learned, if you were here, that, that prayer isn't about drawing attention to ourselves, remember? And this might seem obvious to most of us, but as sinful people, our default mode is to make everything about us, is it not? The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they used prayer uh, to, to, to make themselves look and sound holy and devout and theologically astute. I confessed to you last week that to my shame, I am guilty of having done this in my life of praying very fancifully and, and, and obviously, you know, because I'm, I'm aware of, of other people who are aware of me praying. And maybe you have done the same in, in your life. When we make prayer about impressing others, we take our attention off God, and when we do, it ceases to be prayer. We've got to understand that. Our posture might be one of, you know, our hands are folded and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. But if our heart is fixated on who is seeing and hearing me, it, it actually ceases to be prayer. The same is true when we make prayer about impressing God. And we looked at this last week. The Gentiles of Jesus' day would, would often pray lengthy and lofty prayers with the hope of getting God's attention. Right And gaining God's favor. And if, if any of you, like me, have ever felt the need to pray exactly the right words in order for God to hear us, well, we can relate with the Gentiles then. But this, this, this idea, this pressure that we put on ourselves to, to impress God with our words, to pray exactly the right words before he will hear us, it actually it fails to understand prayer through the lens of the gospel. Right? It fails to understand and to see that, that you and I, on our best day, we are woefully unimpressive people when it comes to the spiritual realm. And our prayers are truthfully equally unimpressive to God. It's the whole reason why Jesus came to earth in the first place, to live the righteous, impressive life 
that you and I have failed to live. And, and, and through his atoning death and resurrection, he now invites us to trust him and to be united with him. And when we are united with him, guess what? Good news. God unites us with his impressiveness as well. We needn't, we needn't impress God with our prayers. Jesus did all of the impressing in his perfect life, and we have been hidden in Christ. Amen. So when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not about wowing God into listening. And so I hope that maybe some of you tasted a bit of freedom this week, and maybe not this past week, this coming week. Taste and live in the freedom that we can be, we are relieved of the burden of trying to impress God in any way, shape, or form. We are relieved of that burden, and instead, in Jesus' name, we can know, you and I can know, that we have uh, God's ear and his heart when we simply come to him like we would a loyal friend, or even better, a loving father, which is why Jesus urges us in Matthew 6, verse 9, if you'll look ahead one verse, he says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder, would you bow your heads and pray with me as I pray those very words? Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Let, let your name be considered holy in our hearts this morning. We ask that your kingdom would come and that you show us what that means. We ask that your will would be done and you would show us what that means on earth today, here in Worcester, as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't the Lord's Prayer so refreshingly ordinary? Isn't it? It's, it's so simple. No flash, no pretension. This ought to be the pattern for all of our prayers. In fact, that's exactly what, what Jesus is intending here when he says, pray then like this. He's giving us a pattern. He's giving us a pattern to follow. Not a law that, that every word has to, to line up exactly so before God will accept it, but he's giving us a pattern for prayer. And then in the second half of verse 9, Jesus actually shows us the posture of prayer. When, when, when Christians pray, we do not do so as outsiders trying to, to vie for God's favor and attention. Because of Christ, we pray to God our Father as his children. As his, as his kids. And the words, our Father, denote the fact that we come to God in prayer with a spirit of confidence. This is, a, this is our posture. Jesus offers us a pattern of prayer, and then he, he shows us the posture of prayer. Because of God being our Father, we can come to him in a spirit of confidence that he's given us his ear because he's given us his heart. It's one of confidence, but our posture before the Lord is also one of reverence. As we see in the words, hallowed, 
be your name. Those, those words are there to remind us that when we pray, yes, we are addressing a loving Father who is also a holy God. We ought not be smug or entitled, pridefully, arrogantly entitled, when we approach the throne of grace in prayer. Because this God is, in fact, the same God who spoke the world into existence. It's the same God who numbers and names the stars, who enthrones and dethrones kings. When we pray, our posture as sons and daughters of God ought to be one of confident reverence, lifting up our thoughts and our words and our hearts to our hallowed heavenly Father. And this morning, as we transition into verse 10, we build upon that pattern and posture of prayer that Jesus has laid out for us in verse 9, and we're going to be examining the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is plainly stated in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this one verse, J.I. Packer writes, more clearly than anywhere else, the purpose of prayer becomes plain. The purpose of prayer is not to make God do my will. That's practicing magic. But to bring my will into line with his. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. The purpose of prayer is not to align God with our will, but to align our will with his. I just recently inherited a 2012 Honda Civic. I am moving up in this world. I am so excited. The last six years, I have been driving around a 2004 Ford Focus that I affectionately call the Golden Arrow. It's a station wagon, and I call it the Golden Arrow because it's gold, not because it drives straight, okay? It's, it's gold. Now, look, this car notoriously pulls to the right, okay? Driving around town, driving around downtown Worcester, it's not as noticeable, but as I'm on my way out to Ashland on those incredibly you know, straight, long roads, the misalignment becomes more and more obvious. And the only thing over the years that has corrected this issue and saves me from drastically driving off course is by taking it to the shop regularly for an alignment. In one word... That's the purpose of prayer, alignment. Because like my Ford Focus, <laughs> the Bible teaches us that our human hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, the hymnist writes, prone to leave the God I love. And only with regular alignments do we have the hope of steering straight otherwise we will what inevitably veer and god's people desire this alignment because we know that when we are aligned with god and his will that is where we find true freedom and fullness of life 
The psalmist of 119, 42 through 45 knew this to be true. I trust in your word. My hope is in your rule. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, for I shall walk in freedom because I have sought your precepts. This is the purpose of prayer, to align us with the will of God, which results in our freedom and fullness of life. I really only have one point this morning, and it's basically what I just said. If you want to write a number one, you're welcome to do that, but that's bad outlining uh, because, you know, there's only a number one if there's a number two. So, so the thesis idea here is that the purpose of prayer, here it is, to align our desires and our doings with the kingdom will of God. That's what we're going to drive at for the rest of our time, that one singular thing. And it's Communion Sunday, so if I end a little early, it'll be nothing but good, right? So, your kingdom, amen. <laughs> uh, strike that from the recording. <laughs> Unless you've just recently read the, the Lord of the Rings or you've taken a trip to Great Britain, you probably haven't used the word kingdom in, in a while. The Bible uses the word kingdom... When we say your kingdom come, the word kingdom is used to describe God's reign over God's people in God's place under God's blessing. I'm going to give you that definition one more time. I think that having a, having a definition of the kingdom of God handy is really helpful. The kingdom of God is God's reign over God's people in God's place, under God's blessing. Now, there was a very short time in human history when your kingdom come never needed to be prayed. Before our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God, there was no division between God and man. There was no chasm. There was no misalignment. There was no separation between kingdoms, if you will. Follow, follow with me here for a second. There was just flourishing. There was just freedom and fullness of life in fellowship with God in his kingdom. But the sin of Adam and Eve and, 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 and our sins contributed to this as well have separated us from God and have essentially exiled us from God's kingdom and when I say thus, the result was the forging of another kingdom, I, I want to be very careful in saying this, that, that the kingdom of, of man or of darkness or of sin, that, that you, whatever you want to call it, that was forged in our rebellion is subservient still to the greater kingdom of God. There are no competing kingdoms here in terms of, you know, eye-to-eye -eye power. The kingdom of God rules and reigns over all things, all places, all time. Amen? But when we rebelled against God in the garden, there was a pseudo-kingdom forged. And I'm going to refer to it a bit as, the, as kind of the kingdom of man, the fallen kingdom of, of, of sin. Now, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the entire Old Testament, we see God promise and then prepare humanity for the arrival of a king who would come to reverse that separation that happened in the garden. He would come to, in fact, reestablish the kingdom of God on the earth. 
That is, that's, that's the story of the Bible, right, right there. That's a summary of the entire Bible. The promised king, of course, is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And when he arrives, we read in the New Testament book of Matthew that he begins this promised reestablishment of the kingdom of God on earth. He begins it with signs and, and wonders and miracles and, and preaching with authority. He calls men and women and children from, from Galilee and Capernaum and Jerusalem. He calls everyone to repent, to turn away from the kingdom of, of man, of their sin, and to turn toward the kingdom of God, which he has brought with him to inaugurate on the earth. And then through his dying for sin on the cross and then through his raising to new life three days later, he not only made a way for us to re-enter relationship with God, but he began the process of re-establishing what he will complete at his second coming, right? A re-establishment is underway where at his birth and, and life and death on the cross, God and God man uh, Jesus has has brought the kingdom of God to earth. We are in a season of now the kingdom of God is among us and yet there is still more to come. There is a completion that will come when Jesus returns. And so when we pray your kingdom come what we are essentially doing is aligning ourselves. Remember aligning, right? That wonderful illustration. Yes, we are aligning ourselves right now with a reality that is both now and also not yet. It's also coming. When we pray your kingdom come, we're, we're stepping into a kingdom identity that is both ours now and will for sure be ours in full at Jesus's return. Now think of it like this. I did my best this week to, to think through some sort of an illustration that would, that would try to you know, kind of tie this together. Let's say that you've just downsized your house. Right? The kids are in college and, and you've just purchased a smaller house. It's done. Amy Allen was your realtor. You signed. All the papers are signed. But you don't yet have occupancy. You don't yet have occupancy. In fact, the previous owners, you worked it out, they're going to live there for about three more weeks. So the reality is the house is yours right now, but at present, that reality is not yet being fully experienced. Does that make sense? And so it is with the kingdom of God. At present, right now, Satan, sin, and death have all been defeated, past tense, it is finished on the cross, defeated, but they have not yet been vanquished from the earth. Don't know the last time you turned on the news. That is obvious. At present, Jesus lives in his people through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but soon, glory, he will live with his people on the renewed earth. And yet, when we pray, your kingdom come, what we're doing is we are aligning ourselves in the present with the reality that is to be fully revealed in the future. We're not yet fully experiencing that smaller house that we've just bought, remember? But in the meantime, we're garage sailing all of our excess furniture. 
We're, prepar- we're preparing for this smaller house. We're donating all of our extra clothing. We're, we're consolidating our pots and pans. We are aligning ourselves now with the reality of a smaller house that is not yet fully here. Have I tapped that illustration out enough yet? When we earnestly pray, your kingdom come, God the Holy Spirit will honor that desire and he will lead us to three things. So I guess I do have a bit of an outline. Here's some application. The first thing, when we pray, and I'll say this really quickly, that your kingdom come and your will be done are two sides of the same coin. When we pray that God's kingdom would come, as we're about to see in some of this application, and be uh, reorient our desires to, to renew our mind and thinking and really reposition us as, as, as citizens of heaven now, here, um, when we pray that, God's will in our lives is done. It, it will come to pass. So I wanted to say that, just that as we go here, when when we pray your kingdom come, inevitably what comes out of that is his will is done. And I I want to show you, when we pray this, it leads us to three things. Number one, when we pray your kingdom come, it will lead us inevitably to repentance. Most people think that the repentance part of the Lord's Prayer begins in verse 12 when Jesus says, you know, forgive us our debts. That's the primary repentance part of the prayer, but that's not where the heart of repentance begins. It begins the very moment we earnestly seek God's kingdom because it's impossible to seek God's kingdom and his desires while at the same time seeking our own. Does that make sense? It is impossible to submit to God's desires while at the same time submitting to our own desires. When we pray your kingdom come, by implication, what we are praying is my kingdom fall. That is my dreams and desires and goals that I hold in higher esteem than I do his. My ideas of success that have been formed by the world, my securities and comforts that I've worked so hard to accumulate and, and, and set up, and I've got this, this bank account as a, as a backup for this bank account, and well, this retirement thing will kick in when this thing, I've got all this set up, I am set, secure, and ready to go for anything, right? It's my need for control is what we are inviting to fall when we say your kingdom come in here first. My kingdom fall, your kingdom come. Now, as I thought through that this week, I wondered to myself, what, what if God's people were to pray, your kingdom come and my kingdom fall down? What if we were to pray that as we planned our yearly budgets in our households? God, let 
your values, let your priorities and desires be reflected in how I manage my money. If this weekend, or this, if this Wednesday at, at community group at CG, if we were to open up our Excel spreadsheets or, or whatever it is we use for our budgets, would we see in each other, would we see an alignment with the kingdom of God? Would we look at each other's budgets and say, that has the kingdom of God written all over it? Where is the orphan and the widow in your budget and in mine? Where is the local church? Where are international missions? Where are the third world countries who house our brothers and sisters in Christ who are barely able to even get clean water? Where are these things in our, in our, in our budgets? The first thing that when we, when we pray your kingdom come and we're praying it here first, I, I almost guarantee you we're going to be smacked in the face with the need to repent. What if God's people were to pray this as we planned our weekly schedules? God, above all else that I do this week, since these next seven days, Lord willing, if you give them, they are a gift to me. What if the next seven days, Lord, your values and priorities and desires were, re were reflected in every moment of how I spent my time and my family's time? I mean, I, I think I've railed on this before, but... I just, even for my own family and, and, and friends of ours, I just, I wonder how different the, the local sports scene would look if all of the Christians started praying, are we, are we really managing our time well by enabling our kid to just absolutely dictate the yearly calendar? We're barely able to even be in fellowship because of traveling this, that, and the other. I wonder how different the landscape would change. I wonder if when we look at our week, the next seven days, have you actually, have we, I'm not sounding accusatory, have we penciled in, have we actually scheduled time for God's word and prayer and fellowship, unhurried fellowship with God's people? How about this? Discipling. Where is that in our calendar? Have we budgeted and allocated time to help someone else follow Jesus? Even if they're, preferably that there's no kickback for us. Just giving our time to the cause of helping them to see Jesus more beautifully. What if God's people were to pray, your kingdom come right at the outbreak of an argument between us and our spouse? or with our kids, or our coworkers, or before, here we go, posting something to Facebook. What if we were to stop and say, your kingdom come, Lord, right in that moment. Right in that moment, as I'm, I can feel my blood boil, I'm sitting there in the kitchen, and I'm about, I'm about ready to kind of just pounce. Right? I'm about to argue with my, what if in that moment, time out, time out. I got to go upstairs for a moment. Lord, your kingdom come and invade my heart right now. 
Lord, it isn't about me. It's not about my pride. It's not about me winning and arguing. It's not about my victory. It is about you and your glory and your kingdom, which, is, which results in my freedom and flourishing and joy. Oh, help me to believe that right now. That in fact, when I win an argument at the expense of my spouse, I actually lose, don't I? In the words of John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. When we pray your kingdom come, we are aligning ourselves right now with a reality that will soon be fully experienced. Do we believe that. When we pray this, it'll lead us to repentance. It'll also lead us to war. And here's what I mean by that. Are you not just sick of all of the scandals and the sexualization and violence that envelops entertainment and politics and Wall Street and everything else are you not sick of it? When we pray, your kingdom come, we will grow sicker and sicker of it. But if we do not pray it, we'll grow accustomed to it. We'll develop a, pa a palate for it. Why else would society be experiencing such a downhill plunge if it weren't for the droves of God's people neglecting to pray, your kingdom come? Because I think the indictment here is that we've grown accustomed to life in exile. We don't so much mind life outside the garden. We've developed a Stockholm Syndrome toward our captor, toward our sin, our enemy. The words, your kingdom come, are weaponized. This prayer is not only a full-scale attack on our own little self-centered kingdoms that we build, it is an attack aimed at toppling the kingdom of darkness itself. I mean... Jesus has already earned the victory. Why not pray it? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We are so excited for your kingdom to come. We are acknowledging now as we watch this rubbish on TV, enough is enough. It's time for the return of the king. When we pray your kingdom come, we're aligning ourselves right now with that future reality of his return. I wonder how many of the shows that I watch or magazine articles that I read or podcasts I listen to, I wonder how many of those things, if I were to actually run it through the filter of this first, your kingdom come and your will be done and what I'm about to give my time and energy and attention to, I wonder what my playlist would look like. give ourselves now to the reality of what is coming, and it's coming soon. Thirdly, when we pray this prayer, it'll lead us inevitably to mission. 
how can we not pray as we pray your kingdom come? How can we not pray then? Well, here I am, send me. Where would you have me go? With whom would you have me share the good news of Jesus with? Lord, use me and use this church and use our community groups and use my family to conquer souls with the gospel. Use me to increase the population of your kingdom this year. Oh, that we would have the zeal to to, to pray while we're at our desk at work, your kingdom come. While we're in line at at Aldi or or, or Bueller's or wherever it is that you shop, pray it while you're filling up at your gas station. Pray it while you're waiting for your food to come out and your waitress is on her way. Your kingdom come. Your will be done here in this interaction. Believing. God wants to add to his citizens his kingdom. What on earth would convince Americans to pray this sort of a prayer? Right? Like, in all honesty, our, our kingdoms that, that, that we kind of build ourselves, they're, 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 they're pretty good. They're pretty comfy. Um... There's not a lot of need. There's not a lot of lack. And that is a a danger for the church. What on earth would convince American Christians in the 21st century to pray, not my kingdom? No, no, no. I must decrease. You must increase. Your kingdom come and your will be done in my life. What would... What would convince Americans to pray such a prayer? I'm convinced that the Lord's Prayer follows a logical succession. And that when Jesus started with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, he did so very intentionally. Because if you and I are convinced in our bones that the God of all the universe has adopted us in Jesus Christ and he is our adopted and loving and attentive father who's given us his ear and his heart, if we actually believe that he loves us like that and if we actually believe that he is hallowed, he is set apart, he is holy and sovereign and utterly in control. He has both. He's, he's, he's loving and sovereign. If we really believed in our bones that he is both our father and sovereign king, we would recognize that the plans that he has for our lives are far, far greater than anything we can concoct on our own. And so with all of our miniature pseudo-kingdoms here, there, and everywhere, all scattered around Worcester, Ohio, I believe that if we just go back to the beginning, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we ask him to make real to our hearts the profound truth of that statement, I believe that we will want, we will desire to relinquish these kingdoms into his hand in trust that he 
is able to give us far greater than anything that we would be trying to concoct on our own, like I just said. There is no place in Scripture that better illustrates this than than Jesus himself praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm not going to touch on this for a long time. I'm going to let our brother Ed Rocha do that for our communion introduction. But suffice it to say that Jesus, in his humanity, as he laid in the Garden of Gethsemane with his crucifixion on his mind, it's not that he didn't have a desire that the story would, would end a certain way. He asked, is there any other way this could happen? But he submitted himself, even Jesus, saying, your will be done. And when we pray that prayer, when we echo that prayer, what we're doing today is acknowledging the limitations of our vantage point. We can come to Jesus, we can come to the Lord today, and we can say, as we're asking him to you know, purge us of our own kingdom and to, to establish his kingdom in our hearts and his will, we can say, Lord, I've, we've, I've got a brother who's sick or, or a coworker who, who, got, who doesn't know you or uh, this financial need. We can come to him. We can bring to him as our father our requests. We can plead with him. He promises to hear us. But we also say, Lord, my vantage point is limited. Your vantage point is high and lifted up. You are at plus 30,000 feet. You see everything. So I ultimately, I submit my desires and my will to yours. Your will be done. And I trust, because you are my father, that it will turn out for my good. The result in this place is true freedom and fullness of life. The purpose of prayer is to align us to the will of God, to give us the kingdom desires of the king himself. Let's pray.